This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. I'd like to start by returning to a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh that we had in last week's program. He said, Listening to our own suffering, our own fear, our own anger, is the first thing we have to do as a person and as a community. After that, when we have some insight about the roots of our fear, our anger, our despair, then we can listen to other groups of people. While listening, you have to practice mindful breathing in order to keep calm, to maintain compassion in you, because that practice of deep listening is also called the practice of compassionate listening. Compassionate listening means to listen with one purpose, helping the other side, the other person, to express himself or herself and get relief. You don't listen to criticize. You just listen in order to give the other person a chance to empty his heart, to empty her heart, in order to get relief. When you can listen like that for one hour to the other person, he or she will get relief. During the whole time of listening, you keep your practice of mindful breathing in order to maintain compassion. If these two things do not exist during the time of listening, your listening will not have a good effect. Since we, when we search we can find no true sufferer, we cannot assign the suffering to any particular being. There is only suffering. Therefore, wherever we find suffering, whether it is experienced by this me designated on my body and mind, or the me designated on someone else's, we should do our best to relieve it. Now, of course, most of us are not yet at the stage of seeing emptiness, that is, the lack of inherent independent existence of the sufferer or the suffering. So we need to train our minds until we can find no difference between ourselves and others. But even though we are still very separate, because there are so many more others, their happiness and freedom from suffering must take precedence over our own. You might be a bit perplexed by all this, but just to put it into context, it's all part of the equalizing and exchanging self for others method of developing bodhicitta that we've been discussing over the last few weeks. Remember that after equalizing ourselves with others by considering nine points, we went through first seeing the disadvantages of self-cherishing, then the advantages of cherishing others, and now we're considering actually exchanging ourselves for others. That means exchanging the mind that always looks out for one's own well-being and happiness for the mind that is primarily concerned with others' well-being. In other words, changing the focus on my happiness only to all others' beings' happiness. Last week, we took as an example part of a talk given by Thich Nhat Hanh at the Peace Walk in Memphis, Tennessee in 2002. 
speaking about how mindfulness and compassion can help eliminate the boundaries between one's own and others' sufferings, he described how groups of Israelis and Palestinians practicing mindful listening and compassion at Plum Village, his center in France, came to a great understanding and appreciation of each other's situation, as well as empathy for each other. In the talk, he also used another much more intimate example to illustrate how by changing a narrow, self-centered and trouble-causing view to other focused thinking, we can bring immense relief to suffering and move much closer to enlightenment. But now, before venturing into that, let's take a moment to think about our motivation for participating in the program today, as we usually do. By making that motivation as vast as possible, we too can set the scene and establish the conditions for so much relief from misery. The vast motivation is, of course, bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment so that we can help all other beings throughout space and time attain it too. Because its focus, all beings, is so great, the positive potential we generate is vast. But we not only think of leading them to enlightenment, we also think of helping them to attain their temporary goals in whatever way we can. Thus our motivation includes both ultimate and temporary assistance. Now if you can, please motivate that way. But if it's too much, at least motivate for your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now keeping our motivation at the back of our minds, let's return to Thich Nhat Hanh. Here's the story he tells of a Californian couple who are basically driving each other insane. He says, The lady, who was a Catholic, wanted to commit suicide because she had suffered so much. There was no joy in her life anymore. Her husband was like a bomb, ready to explode at any time. He had a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, and a lot of frustration, a lot of violence in him. The three children who attended university were very afraid of coming close to their father. Their father would get angry at anything, would explode at any time. He believed that his wife and his three children were boycotting him, and that made his anger and frustration grow bigger and bigger every day. The lady had a friend, a Buddhist practitioner, who was aware of her situation and who had tried to persuade her to listen to a Dharma talk given by her teacher. The title of the Dharma talk, in the form of a cassette tape, is How to Defuse a Bomb. When you contain within yourself too much violence, too much anger, you become very tense. You become like a bomb. You suffer very much, and you spill your suffering all over the people who live with you, and people are afraid of you. They don't want to approach you. And then you believe that everyone is boycotting you. You are extremely lonely. The Buddhist lady believed that if her friend listened to the Dharma talk, she would know how to help defuse the bomb in her husband. But that lady considered herself a Catholic. She said, I'm a Catholic. Why should I listen to this kind of stuff? But the morning that the lady called and announced that she was going to die, her Buddhist friend asked her to come over right away. She wanted to see her for the last time, and this time she tried her best to convince the lady to listen to the talk. She said, You always said that I'm your best friend, and the only thing I ask you to do is to listen to the Dharma talk of my teacher. I don't think that you are truly my friend. That challenge helped. The lady told herself, Now I'm going to die. Why don't I satisfy the person I consider to be my friend? So she agreed to listen to the Dharma talk. 
The Buddhist lady withdrew in order to allow her friend to be alone in the living room and she began to listen to the cassette tape. As she listened to the Dharma talk, insight came to her. She recognized the fact that the suffering in her had not been created only by her husband, but by herself. And the suffering in her husband had not been created by her husband alone, but she had participated in creating the suffering in him. When she listened to the Dharma talk, she realized that in the last six years she had never used the kind of language that is called loving speech. She always blamed him. She always used a very sour language, full of blaming and judgment. She realized she had made the situation worse every day. And she felt that she was partly responsible for her own suffering and the suffering of her husband. When you suffer, you have the tendency to blame the other person as the only source of your suffering. You don't recognize that you are responsible to some extent for your suffering and you have also created the suffering of the other person. That was her insight during the time that she listened to the talk and her heart opened and for the first time in many years she felt sorry. She felt compassion for herself and for her husband. She was animated inspired by the idea of going home and helping her husband by practicing listening deeply, listening with compassion. She became very enthusiastic. But her Buddhist friend said, No, my friend, you are still very weak. You have to train yourself at least one week in order to be able to do so. Because if you listen to him, and if his language is full of blaming and wrong perceptions, you will interrupt him and spoil everything. You have to train yourself first. Let me propose to you this. My teacher is coming from France and is going to offer in the Bay Area two retreats, one for the Vietnamese-speaking people and one for the English-speaking people. Why don't you sign up for the first retreat? The Catholic lady accepted and during the six-day retreat she practiced with all her heart because for her it was a matter of life and death. That is why she invested herself entirely into the practice. She learned how to breathe how to walk, how to embrace the suffering in her, how to use the kind of loving speech that will be able to open the heart of her husband. And with the support of other practitioners, she went very deeply into the practice. The night that she came home, she put into practice what she'd learned on the retreat. She was very silent that night, practicing mindful breathing, mindful walking. And finally, she came and sat down close to her husband and she began to speak. She said, My husband, I know that you have suffered terribly during the past six or seven years. I have not been able to help you, and I have made the situation worse. I am sorry. I did not know how to listen to you. I didn't know what was going on in your heart, in your mind. I was blind. I was unable to see. And that is why I have made the situation worse. I didn't want you to suffer. I wanted you to be happy. But because I didn't know how... I've made the situation worse. So please, my husband, please help me. Please tell me what is in your heart. I want to understand so that I will not repeat the unskillful things I've done. I'm very sorry. You have to help me. Alone I cannot change. She was very surprised to see him begin to cry like a little boy. Seeing that, she knew that the door of communication had opened. So she practiced mindful breathing deeply, and she insisted... Please, my husband, please tell me what is in your heart. I will try to listen. I will try to understand. I want you to be happy. 
I don't want you to suffer. It turned out that that night was a very healing night for both of them. She was very successful in her practice of deep listening and using loving speech, and she was able to restore communication. She was able to convince him to sign up for the second retreat of mindfulness. And during the last day of the second retreat, he stood up and he introduced his wife as a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva in Buddhism means an enlightened being who is able to help other people to be enlightened also. And that was the story by Thich Nhat Hanh. Now I'm not saying that every broken relationship can be mended in this way. Nevertheless, I have no doubt that if we take the time to learn and practice mindfulness, deep listening and loving speech, we will immensely broaden our capabilities in two ways. That is, not to cause suffering to others and to help others in their pain. The boundaries between our suffering and others' suffering, I think, will become much more porous. So now we come to the last of the four steps in the meditation on exchanging self for others. This step is called taking and giving, or in Tibetan, tonglen. Actually, tonglen means giving and taking, but the meditation is done in the opposite order, taking and giving. Basically what it means is that we take on suffering and give out happiness. What suffering do we take on? Both our own future suffering and the suffering of all other sentient beings. And now you can see where all the meditation on equalizing and exchanging self for others has led to, giving away all our happiness and taking on the suffering of all beings. Now you'll agree that this is completely opposite to the way we usually act, isn't it? Normally, we run as fast as possible from suffering and grasp at every happiness we can get our hands on. But if we look at what is behind that kind of behavior, we can see the self-cherishing thought. I want happiness and I don't want suffering. Whereas the willingness to take on the suffering and give up our happiness is very much focused on others and their happiness. Tipton Children points out that in an awkward or difficult situation, we are often willing to let someone else deal with the problem rather than take it on ourselves. And I had a very concrete example of this traveling between Hamilton and Auckland recently. It was raining lightly during rush hour and the traffic was heavy on the southwestern motorway. I was traveling to pick up a friend on the way to a meditation class at the Korean temple in the Waitakere's when suddenly the car in front of me stopped on Mungri Bridge and the driver put on his hazard lights. Now obviously something had gone wrong with the car. I was intent on getting to the person I was due to pick up so I put on my indicator lights and someone kindly let me pull into the next lane and continue my journey. However, just as I passed the disabled car, I realized how self-absorbed I had been. I could quite easily have turned on my hazard lights, jumped out of the car and gone to help the driver, at least to push his car out of the stream of traffic to safety, if nothing else. But no, in my self-cherishing state... I let someone else deal with the uncomfortable situation and missed an opportunity. I hope it's taught me a lesson to be more mindful and compassionate the next time. Tipton Children reiterates in her practice that what we used to call I is now others and what we used to call others is I. She says, so when we say you can have suffering and you can do the overtime and you can mow the lawn and you can take out the garbage and you can help the driver on the bridge, we're pointing at our own aggregates. And when we're saying, 
I want happiness and I should have everything good and I should become enlightened, we are pointing at what used to be others because we've exchanged them. Then she goes on, so we're taking and giving, but it's exchanged. What we're doing is, we're now taking the suffering and giving the happiness, whereas before, we took the happiness and gave the suffering. This meditation is quite profound, and when we do it very seriously, and can, it can bring up a lot of stuff. When we think of taking others' suffering, sometimes the mind gets a little bit frightened. That's why they often recommend that when we start the meditation and thought training teachings, we start by thinking about taking on our own suffering. This is a very interesting prospect to do the taking and giving meditation with ourselves as the chief figure. Now this means that this, in this meditation we imagine taking all the suffering that we're going to inherit in the future, like getting sick, getting old, losing friends and relations or possessions and so on, and we accept it and take it into ourselves. We don't shy away from it as we usually do. Ah, but perhaps I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Sitting there and imagining taking on all our suffering sounds a bit grim and probably scary, doesn't it? It sounds like a recipe for depression, maybe. However, there is another component to this meditation that doesn't allow us to sink into the slough of despair. It's described in a number of ways, but I'm going to tell you the way that I was taught to do it. We start off with imagining at the center of our chest a small ember that represents our self-cherishing thought or attitude. And this is the basis of all our problems and difficulties, and it's our true enemy. Now when we think of all that future suffering we have to go through, instead of just taking it in and sitting with it like a huge dark cloud, we dump it on this ember of self-cherishing, thinking, this is yours. You gave it to me, but I don't want it. You can have it all back. We can think of all that suffering like a lump of tar or something flammable that bursts into flame when it hits the self-cherishing ember. We imagine that the ember burns and emits lots of light, which becomes the light of our loving-kindness. This light fills our body and mind, bringing us all the happiness we could wish for, especially long-term happiness from practicing the path and gaining its result. Now we sit with this visualization for as long as we can. We then call to mind a person dear to us and go through the same process with them. Imagining the ember at our heart chakra, we make a heartfelt wish for that person to be free of all suffering. We visualize all their suffering in the form of black smoke or some such and draw it all out of them and into ourselves in the form of black tar or smoke. Again thinking, you are the creator of all this. We don't want it. Here have it back. We dump the suffering onto the self-cherishing ember. It bursts into flame and emits great light, which we then send out as the light of our loving-kindness to this person, thinking that it brings her or him all the happiness, both short and long-term, they could wish for. Now this can be quite elaborate. We can imagine all sorts of things that would make this person happy. Delicious food, good health, a new car, whatever would bring joy to their life. We then follow up in the same way, imagining a friend, then a stranger, then someone we feel uncomfortable about, or someone we don't get on well with. With each of these, we go through the same process, imagining their pain coming into us as a dark mass, which is dumped onto the self-cherishing ember. That flames up and emits light, which becomes the light of our loving-kindness, 
which we send out to the other person, imagining all their happiness increases right up until the bliss of enlightenment. In the last step, we imagine all sentient beings in every direction, not only on earth, but on every planet they can be found and repeat the process for them. This is a more simple approach than Tupton children's, but if you want to practice this meditation, you can choose whichever way suits your mind. She says, Whoever it is out front, we think of their suffering. We generate compassion for them, and then we imagine that their suffering leaves them in the form of pollution and all sorts of icky, horrible, junky stuff that comes out of them. Their suffering and the cause of their suffering and their afflictive emotions leaves them in the form of this pollution. Now they're free of the suffering. We take this pollution into ourselves and we don't just sit there with everybody's suffering and causes of suffering on top of our heart or our head. We imagine that as it comes to us, it transforms into a thunderbolt that then strikes at the lump of our own self-centered thought which we imagine at our heart. And you know how it is when we get really selfish. We have the expression in English, hard-hearted, don't we? There it is, right in our own language, somebody is hard-hearted. Somebody who is very self-centered is hard-hearted. We can feel that when we are very attached or very angry or jealous or proud. There is actually pain in the chest sometimes when we are worried and fearful about our own happiness. That rock or hard place in our own heart is our own self-centeredness and our own self-grasping ignorance. When we take on others' suffering in the form of this pollution, it becomes a thunderbolt and we imagine that it strikes this lump in our own heart. It blows it up, and then in our heart there is just space. That can be a real interesting thing to imagine, having our heart be just open space. It's not crowded in there, it's not congested, it's not painful. It's just total open space, without limits, without boundaries. So that's the taking part. We're taking others' suffering which they don't want, and using it to destroy the cause of our own suffering, our own self-centeredness, which is what we don't want. So it actually becomes very constructive. Then we stay in that open space in our heart, and after some time we imagine that a light appears there, and that light is the nature of our loving-kindness. We radiate that out to others, and we imagine that we are able to take our body and transform it into what others need, and multiply it, so if someone needs a friend, we send them a friend. If they need a doctor or a babysitter or plumber or washer repairman, whatever it is, we send it out to them. So we imagine giving our body, making charity out of our body. Then we imagine our possessions. All of our stuff, whatever it is we have, our glasses, our bag, we imagine that we multiply and expand it and transform it so it becomes what other, whatever others need and send it out to them. When we're sending out our body and our possessions, transformed into what others need, we should imagine that other people receive and feel very happy and delighted at having these things. So really imagine that through our generosity, others are delighted and take joy in their delightedness. We give our body, we give our possessions, we also give our own positive potential. All the good karma that we've accumulated, instead of thinking selfishly and holding onto it for ourselves, we dedicate it and we imagine sending it out as all these rays of light, and it goes out and also becomes what others need. We can imagine that by sending out our positive potential, we give other beings spiritual realizations. For example, 
When we're transforming our body and sending it out, maybe we're giving them perfect environments to practice the Dharma in, and Dharma books, and a meditation hall, and the whole thing. When we transform our body and send it out, we imagine sending them teachers and Dharma friends. When we take our positive potential and send it out, we imagine that they all gain spiritual realizations. And here you can go through all the steps of the Lamb Rim. Oh, now they have understanding of the importance of a relationship with a teacher. Now they understand precious human life. Now they understand death and impermanence. And you go through and imagine giving all these realizations. Now they have bodhicitta. Now they realize emptiness. Now they are transforming into bodhisattvas and buddhas. Now His Holiness the Dalai Lama also has some wise and cautionary words to say about practicing Tonlen. He says, When approaching Buddhist practices of this kind, where there is a suggestion that we take harm and suffering upon ourselves, I think it's vital to consider them carefully and appreciate them in their proper context. What is actually being suggested here is that, that if in the process of following your spiritual path and learning to think about the welfare of others, you are led to take on certain hardships or even suffering, then you should be totally prepared for this. The texts do not imply that you should hate yourself or be harsh on yourself or somehow wish misery upon yourself in a masochistic way. It is important to know that this is not the meaning. Another example we should not misinterpret is the verse in a famous Tibetan text which reads, May I have the courage, if necessary, to spend eons and eons, innumerable lifetimes, even the deepest hell realm. The point that is being made here is that the level of your courage should be such that if this is required of you as part of the process of working for others' well-being, then you should have the willingness and commitment to accept it. A correct understanding of these passages is very important, because otherwise you may use them to reinforce any feelings of self-hatred, thinking that if the self is the embodiment of self-centeredness, one should banish oneself into oblivion. Do not forget that ultimately the motivation behind wishing to, to follow a spiritual path is to attain supreme happiness. So, just as one seeks happiness for oneself, one is also seeking happiness for others. Even from a practical point of view, for someone to develop genuine compassion towards others, first he or she must have a basis upon which to cultivate compassion. And that basis is the ability to connect to one's own feelings and to care for one's own welfare. If one is not capable of doing that, how can one reach out to others and feel concerned for them? Caring for others requires caring for oneself. The practice of Tong Len, giving and taking, encapsulates the practices of loving-kindness and compassion. The practice of giving emphasizes the practice of loving-kindness, whereas the practice of taking emphasizes the practice of compassion. And that's what His Holiness the Dalai Lama says. I think it's very important that we practice Tong Len with as much loving-kindness and compassion for ourselves as we're trying to develop for others. In previous programs, we've also emphasized not running ourselves into the ground in the mistaken view that we don't matter. Only others do. As His Holiness says, for us to have genuine compassion for others, we must have compassion for ourselves first, and the same goes for loving kindness. Anyway, we're going to have to stop here as our time is once again up. 
please dedicate as we usually do to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you so much for being with the program today and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Have a wonderful week and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.